0: Tar and Cement on the air, Now it's City Limits on the air, over the Tar and Cement, just right over it. And um, and here we are, I'm Kevin Healy, and Eugenia Zubchenko is in the chair this morning, pressing <laughs> buttons and things. Good uh, morning, everyone. Gabriel Reed's in the studio as well, first time I've seen her all year, how long ago? <laughs> and uh, and Meg's running a bit late, but she'll be here very shortly, in fact, she's uh, been delayed. And uh, it's our second, second uh, Wednesday of the month, which is sort of Energy Environment Utilities Day. And I want to talk about a, a breakthrough there, in fact, very shortly, but Eugenia, you've got a guest coming in.
1: Yeah, so in the second half of the show today, we're going to speak to Associate Professor Guillermo Narcillo from the University of Melbourne, and he's going to talk to us about geothermal energy as a potential renewable source right, for Victoria.
0: okay, terrific, okay. And the other story I want to talk about, um, and we'll go to that shortly, was the decision in the uh, New South Wales Environment and Land Court, land and environment, whichever order it goes, last Friday where the Gloucester coal mine was knocked back by the court. Uh, The case was taken up on behalf of Gloucester residents by the Environment Defenders' office in New South Wales, whom I spoke to yesterday, but they couldn't come on today. But they will hope to have them on in a couple of weeks' time, talking about that decision. It was also in the law report last night, actually on the ABC. They covered it as well, yeah, but it's a like good, a really... good news story because yeah. uh, <laughs> the judge. One of the yeah, one of the reasons the judge gave was that the impact on climate change should be taken into consideration in all these decisions and uh, and all that. So finally, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, of course, the industry's up in arms. In fact, the bloke from the coal lobby said the judge is supposed to rule by the law, and this is not the law as I know it. And I thought, well, the law as he knows is that he can do what he bloody likes. Uh, but anyway, uh, they've won on law. That's good.
1: Fantastic. Okay,
0: a cup of tea, by the way, anyone?
1: I'm okay. Thank you. You're I just okay. made myself one because oh, oh. I needed to prepare for my first panelling experience. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Well, look, one, one thing I do want to raise is the dangers of um, magazines that have, like the Finn Review, a couple, twice a month, at least twice a month, about three times it has a life and leisure, but once a month it has a main magazine and then it has... Um, The Boss once a month and they're printed way before publication date obviously because the magazine left out which is a bit unfortunate because last um, Friday in the magazine that fell out they say uh, a new year holds new promise for Australia's leaders. This is the magazine called Boss. (laughs) Here are seven to watch in 2019 and as you go down the list you suddenly find Andrew Thorburn, the National Australia Bank chief executive, will take one of corporate Australia's most talked-about holidays in mid-February as he cashes in a bit of long service leave to recharge the batteries. Thorburn and his chairman, Ken Henry, have dismissed any criticism of the move and insist that Thorburn will be back more energetic than ever. And on it goes. And the front page the same day had the two of them sacked or... Mm. Sorry, resigned. That's a terrible thing to say, sacked. <laughs> resigned. Um, so um, you can come come, come on. Stuck, can't you?
1: Yeah, totally. Boss Magazine, did you say?
0: It's called Boss. It crawls out of the print review once a month. Right,
1: yep. And,
0: Interesting. Uh, yeah, so uh, that was just the, a bit the, of bad timing. Their target
1: in, audience, I'm guessing. In fact,
0: the monthly magazine they have, um, which uh, is very glossy and advertises million-dollar watches and things and million-dollar mm. cars, uh in one of one of them, they had Australia's most powerful people, and they had the most powerful person as the prime minister. Who, when the magazine came out, was no longer the prime minister. But uh, that happened a couple of years right. ago as well. Yeah,
1: inconvenient. <laughs> it
0: can, can happen.
1: Well, press issue. <laughs> Having a
0: sip of tea here. Yeah.
1: Mm. How was your ride <laughs> into the studio this morning?
0: Um, good, good. Yeah, good. it was. Um, no, not too much traffic. No, no, it was quite, quite good. Quite mm, good. Wonderful.
1: Mm. And what else have you got and, for and us in terms of the into, news?
0: Back in okay. land, I've been. Always, I've been away for a week, so I'm getting sort of getting back into Melbourne. <laughs> um, I just found the Herald Sun's done it again because when um, Zali Stegall said she was going to run against Tony Abbott, she made it clear, you know, from her policies, she's she, she's I think a sincere but you know relatively conservative woman, and uh, she made it clear that she had nothing to do with get up etc. She just wanted to run because she thought she didn't didn't agree with his climate change and refugee policies, and as most people do. Um, but the Herald Sun's come up with, has found out she's actually linked to left-wing activist group Get Up.
1: Oh, oh drama! Yes,
0: Olympic skier Zali stegel has claimed to be an independent candidate in the Sydney seat of Warringah. But her campaign manager has been receiving tips via a secret encrypted phone messenger app from the Labor Greens-aligned getup, <laughs> and on it goes. So there you are; uh, they've done it again. Gosh,
1: What's, WhatsApp being used for um, <laughs> conspiracy
0: <laughs> in <right>. Canberra. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and on that decision of the New South Wales Court, um, the judge um, gave a, the judge whose name was uh, Preston Brian Preston. He um, ruled, as I say, that apart from everything else, they had to take climate change and social and other impacts into account.
1: Climate change and social. Wow, this really is a field day. Yes, he says
0: the project will have a significant and unacceptable planning, visual and social impacts, uh, which cannot be satisfactorily mitigated, should be refused for these reasons alone. But in an article by Matthew Stevens, the very pro- pro-mining and anti-union um, columnist in the Financial Review, he says, but Preston did not rest with those reasons alone. He concluded that, through, that though trivial in a, in a local, national or global sense, Rocky Hill's contribution to the carbon emissions was unacceptable because it was not necessary or economically justifiable and because the long march to emissions reduction starts with a small step." And on he goes, but he, he gets, because he's getting stuck right into it and telling us what yeah, a terrible yeah, decision yeah. it was.
1: I love how he makes it sound trivial as well. Like, you know, it's a full sized coal mine, that's isn't right.
0: it? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's Gloucester. It going to be an export coal mine, but mm, uh, yeah, yeah, it's totally it's, trivial. It's in the Hunter Valley, that's right. <laughs> and the local residents were up in arms, and as I say, the Environment Defender's Office took up the case. Um, but and, it, and and he also talked about the Paris Agreement. But and in, and Matthews says, but Preston has taken a view that stretches beyond Paris and our obligations. The global problem of climate change needs to be addressed by multiple local actions to mitigate emissions. And he accepted the Paris Agreement does not prescribe the mechanic me- mechanisms by which these uh, reductions should occur, nor does it make prescription for new coal mines. But but then he goes on, but Preston knows better. He has decided the introduction of any new coal to the global system will reflate the global climate challenge, and that is no longer on. And on he goes, and in fact, he concludes that they, it must be appealed. Mm. And then the Financial Review had an editorial saying it must be appealed. And um, the Institute of, Institute of Public Affairs, of, you know, as we all know, a very radical little group, <laughs> also said it must be appealed. Uh, but it may not be, and their the worry is, and it 's interesting because co- he said on environmental grounds that climate change impacts must be taken into consideration if it if it's set as a precedent, it no longer it means also not just coal mines but any development that can emit c o two could yep. come under the same ruling so yep. That's why they're screaming out for, um, for appeal to that's make so sure fantastic. it gets overthrown. But yeah. it's an interesting, it's a bloody interesting decision. So,
1: so, this will, you know, there's a legal mechanism by which this could be referred to in later cases?
0: Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah, and in fantastic. fact, he, he makes the point that um, it could well be a decision as dicta, which is the judge's opinion rather than real law. Yeah. Um, and that, that was the argument that, in fact, the Cole and everyone else is making when he says that is not the law, he's supposed to rule on the law. But in fact, on the law report on the ABC last night, they had an, a lawyer who is not attached to the Environment Defender's Office. In mm. fact, this, the, his company has represented BHP in these cases, mm. who said the judge's ruling stood up at law. So, mm. um, so there you go. So there you are, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, what's really interesting to me is that, um, is that he's not only considering the environmental impacts, which are obviously really important, but also the social ones. Because, yeah. you know, we've talked a lot about this show, um, on this show, about how these kind of projects impact disadvantaged communities disproportionately. Yes. So yes. it's really fantastic yes. that that's being recognised. Well, in
0: fact, there was an appeal by Gloucester themselves because originally the New South Wales Planning Assessment Commission had knocked it back. Um, and their reason, though, was that it was too close to the town and too close to facilities that it might damage, et cetera. So that was an original ruling anyway, and this was an appeal against that. But mm. he actually added the climate change stuff, et cetera, to it. So I that guess. was quite good. The other story of this week that has really been interesting, I think, is the, um, is Manus Island, uh, mm. where the contract, I don't know if you picked it up, but the federal government awarded a $109 million contract extension to the firm providing security for refugees at Manus Island, despite allegations of suspicious payments lying during the tender process and deceptive conduct. The extension takes the total value of work won by the little-known and secretive Paladin Group to $423 million over 22 months. Um, it says more than global, global accounting firm EY has billed the government in five years. The contract was extended on January 3... Well, no one knows what's going on, of course, mm. um, even after one of its founders was not permitted entry into PNG in the weeks following another director was charged with 106 counts of fraud and one of money laundering. Wow. Listed, and they say its Australian office is down a, a back road in a beach shack on Kangaroo Island. Mm. (laughs) So they're a pretty reputable company. Won the contract after a campaign by our advocates forced Transfield to get out because, as we know, they saw the reputational value of getting out. Um, And uh, it's owned by former Australian soldier Craig Thrupp and his business partner, partner Ian Stewart. Neither has a presence on social media and the company website has no photos or biographies for the key executives. An investigation by the Australian Financial Review has found Paladin is receiving more than $20 million a month from the Department of Home Affairs, despite cost estimated at less than $3 million a month by those with knowledge of the contract. And they don't provide food or catering, They just provide, um, they just look after the security and some maintenance and IT services and local transport. Uh, but Peter Dutton refuses to release details of the contract because it would cause damage to our international relations with PNG, etc., <laughs> etc. Et well, that's suggestive, um, isn't
1: it?
0: <laughs> yes, and um, a bloke called Craig Coleman, who was there working there and got the got the flick, he's he's taken an employment dispute case to court. But in in that, he alleges that. Three weeks before being awarded the contract, Paladin was not well prepared to perform the role provided for under the proposal. Paladin did not have the corporate structure, human and other resources or processes that were permitted to perform the roles required under the proposal, etc. Mm. And then the next day, which was yesterday, the Fin Review, which has been running this story, followed up by saying that um, this bloke, Shrip, or his name is Thrip, um, in fact... Uh, He left a string of bad debts and failed contracts across Asia, raising further questions about how the Palin Group won such a lucrative tender. As pressure builds on the government to explain the hefty cost of its offshore processing regime, further details have emerged about Thrupp and his time in East Timor, Indonesia. He was in East Timor as a soldier. Mm. Company filings show high risk security, a company that Thrupp was associated with, collapsed in 2010 owing more than 170 grand. A year later, Thrupp would become the sole shareholder of a new company, High Risk Security Asia Pacific. He just changed the word in the same company, mm. uh, which by that time had changed its name to Paladin. One one person who had direct dealings with Thrupp during this time in East Timor said the failing of high risk had left a number of um, contracts un- un- unfulfilled and debts unpaid. After the collapse, Thrupp moved to Indonesia where he was providing daily security briefings with companies that once again left with contracts unfulfilled, etc. Um, etc. Et so it's very, very strange. And, yeah,
1: I mean, this kind of. <sighs> Lack of accountability and oversight is horrible in the best of times, but you know, these companies are dealing with people's lives and yeah. really vulnerable people's yeah, absolutely. lives. Absolutely. Which
0: the only, only good news was that vote yesterday, although it now sounds like Devin Hinch is gonna back down on the whole thing and read on it. Medical emergency evacuation yeah. bill. Yeah, he's but he's gonna block it in the Senate. Mm. So well, he's talking sorry, he's he's negotiating. Um, And he'll do the decent thing, of course, he always does, don't we? (laughs) I saw him at Red Hill Market the other week. He didn't say hi. Really, didn't he? Is is his party logo a a, a noose or something? (laughs) He wants to hang everyone who commits anything. But just on the basis of that contract to Paladin, you know, and getting all this money for presumably nothing... Um, I thought this was a lovely little story. The UK government has cancelled a contract on ship to ship goods to the country after it leaves the European Union with a company that turned out to have no boats and no experience running a ferry service.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Terrific. <laughs> More in the same vein. <laughs> that's
0: right. <laughs> but as for... And I was just talking about the newspaper earlier and, um, and having the problem of uh, the magazine, but also... Can't headlines be deceptive? Because mm. there was a page in a paper last week that talked about, and it's about this problem of cladding now and fires and all this oh, stuff, which we'll, talk, we'll discuss on housing next week.
1: Yeah, that's worth its own
0: show, I think. Yeah, um, but we, uh, but there was a headline: reforms to help protect buyers, which is reasonable. And the story says what a you know, headline says, but then. Next to it, there's another story, push for building watchdogs. Now, at this climate, you'd imagine push for building watchdogs would mean someone to look over the construction companies and architects and all these people and developers and make sure they don't do this sort of crap. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's not. It's not. You'll be mm. pleased to know it's, it's about something far more important. The construction industry is urging state Liberal governments to set up their own building watchdogs to rein in the Militant Construction, Forestry, oh. Maritime, Mining and Energy union unions. if Bill Shorten is elected Prime Minister. Master Builders Association branches in NSW, South Australia and Tasmania have approached senior state politicians to set up specific state building agencies to act as, quote, a deterrent against unlawful industrial conduct and coercive behaviour. And it says the, you know, the building construction thing, but it goes on and, and, and uh, I like the way they, actually they do, to honest here, they say the Australian Building and Construction Commission currently pleases the building sector and workers and unions in the industry face higher penalties for engaging in unlawful industrial conduct. They usually say, you know, it, it also prosecutes bosses, but it never does. So <laughs> the only time it prosecutes bosses, if they give too much to the unions, then it prosecutes mm. them for giving too much to the unions. Um, so um that's it. Yeah, they wanted, yeah. yeah.
1: In this context that is pretty hilarious, that's right. you know. Out
0: of control units he said was the number one concern for the commercial building sector, Eugenia.
1: Yeah, right. Not the mm. not the cladding burning and falling off and the danger to human life. No.
0: I don't see the connection at all. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about?
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah, it would be really interesting to explore that in um a, you know, another episode of City Limits and yeah. talk more about how the um system of building permits and oversight works because it's a really kind of murky industry with lots of privatization it's and very, very little much oversight.
0: very much so the um you know kennett privatized the thing back in you know, we don't remember it specifically you're probably aware of it though but he 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 he, he privatised the building inspection and you know, it used to be all done by local government or, or state government mm. and then Kenneth privatised it so private companies can do it and most of them do it without even looking at the property that is yeah. sign a bit of paper uh, and in fact it is such I mean they changed the law I didn't believe they could do it but and I don't, I didn't mind particularly but my next door neighbour's doing an extension and so as part of it um, they had to come in and inspect my property and take photos and things and property each side you know, arguing that if so, if we complained there was some damage caused, we so they have uh,
1: so, some photos of the kitchen. So, it, so it really
0: that's all about protecting the builder and the insurance company, nothing to do with protecting me at all. Yeah. But I but I had no I, and I I objected on the ground that that's all it was, and I said I don't want to just do something to help insurance companies. But then they they pointed out to me, and I've checked the law, the law is that it's compulsory, you can't knock them back under the laws put in by Kennett, so yeah, right. it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah.
1: You should take your own photos as well, just in case, compare and contrast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right,
0: yeah, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> they came last week before I went away, and they yeah, but did it, but anyway, yeah. yeah. But it's just that the, the law is such, yeah, it's worth having a look at that, because they've changed the law now, they even more support developers, etc. Mm. Yeah, and... Um, uh, on a positive note, hopefully long term that group our city our square, we had on this program a while ago, but mm. we'll get one again um, they they're trying again to um, prevent the apple development in in um, federation square, and they're seeking the Heritage Council to grant heritage protection to the Yarra building. Mm. Uh, but then, of course, the Federation Square management has sought permission to demolish the building, arguing in a heritage impact statement prepared by a consultancy that Apple's proposed construction would com- complement the rest of Federation Square's mm. architecture <laughs> and would provide education and community engagement. Oh, well, it's course. getting community engagement. Everyone's opposed to it. <laughs> um, <coughs> so I suppose that's something. Um, yeah, I mean, if anyone's
1: seen the renders or the images that the architects have made to represent the new building that they're proposing, it's obviously ridiculous. It's completely different to everything that's already there. But yeah, it'd yeah. be great to get that group back and hear about yeah, the updates. Well, we
0: will actually, yeah. yeah. And the spokesman for Richard Wynne, the planning minister, said Victoria could have have Victorians could have their say on the renewal of Federation Square as part of the Heritage Council of Victoria's public hearings. Well, oh. yeah, the, the public say has certainly been pretty up yeah. front so far, hasn't it? <laughs> we were told let, the, let
1: the people yeah. have their say. Whether we do anything about it or not is completely our decision.
0: Yep. Um, And in fact, they've launched a crowdfunding campaign, Uh, that's the um, Our City, Our Square Mob, um, and they say you can afford to pledge lavishly on this crowdfunding campaign, since we 'll only be collecting if the state government agrees to our proposition for the public to buy back Fed Square for forty million sadly that 's unlikely, satisfying Apple rather than victorians is the fed square ceo 's top priority, and he had said the idea behind this audacious plan is to raise enough money to buy the building back from Apple because essentially the Victorian government has sold it to Apple. It might be absurd for taxpayers to raise money to buy back a building we already own but that is the game we are now playing so yep. it's all on but anyway pretty good, dramatic good luck to him. that's what I say
1: should we go to a break Kevin I think our guest is here
0: right no no Meg is now guest hi Meg Meg's the co-presenter <laughs> <Men's> co- <laughs> co- <laughs> co- morning okay. yeah let's, ta- let's take a break
2: okay
3: we appreciate like you mob and all the people come and visit us and doing oh. stuff like this you know it's very good it keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it.
0: Because of her we can,
2: yeah, I want to be a better, better man, yeah. because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime.
1: How do you rehabilitate someone, they just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you you know rehabilitation starts when you get out that's when your life begins again, doesn't it?
2: In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.
1: When I first come to this jails was about 10 years ago, and, and I was a young one. A whole the young ones come off the truck there the other day, and... They call me Annie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise it might like, pull myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now.
2: Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars.
0: Alright,
1: welcome back to City Limits, everyone. So it's the um, second Wednesday of the month, so we're talking energy, and we have a special guest in the studio this week. Uh, his name is Associate Professor Guillermo Narcilio. Uh, welcome, Guillermo.
3: Oh, thank you, Gina. <laughs> uh, Kevin
1: so you, um shallow you research shallow geothermal energy, is that right?
3: That's correct, yes. So we have been doing work on shallow geothermal energy technologies for the last eight years at the University of Melbourne with a large group of people. Starting only Professor Ian Johnson and myself, one piece of students, and now we're a group of 10 busy students and one postdoc working on this.
1: Yes. Yeah, great. So do you want to tell us a little bit about geothermal energy and how it could be a potential renewable energy source?
3: Sure. Uh, There are kind of two types of geothermal energy technologies. One is the deep um, geothermal technology that's for power generation. You need to drill several kilometres into the ground, find a ground layer that is hot enough, around 175 Celsius degrees, Um, And then you sequence some fluid through it to the surface, move a turbine, generate electricity. That is technology in development, um, and that's for power generation, electricity generation. The sort of research that we are doing in our group is the second kind of geothermal energy technologies, and it's shallower. Uh, Shallower meaning we tap onto the only, no more than 100 meters into the ground. In some cases, trenches of only two meters Um, below the ground surface we put some pipes into the ground we circulate fluid water in these pipes buried in the ground and this fluid through the pipes kind of suck heat from the ground or reject heat to the ground and with the help of a heat pump um, it upgrades this heat from the ground providing heat into a building or cooling so it's kind of an efficient air conditioning system Um, that provide both cooling in summer and heating in winter, and that's it very, very efficiently, because the ground temperature at these upper layers, these upper 10 metres of the ground, is is as a constant temperature throughout the year. In the case of Melbourne, that is 18 degrees. So you can imagine if you have a split system at home, um, the split system is also a a heat pump, but that heat pump exchanges heat with the air, in summer, it's very hot. So you're mm-hmm. trying to reject heat from your building, from your house, to something s- that is hot. That requires a lot of work. That's, mm-hmm. that's requires a lot replic- of energy. Yeah, yeah That's why your electricity bill <laughs> goes up. Uh, but with the ground, it's at 18 degrees in Melbourne, so it's much cooler than the air. So in principle, uh, you can imagine that rejecting the, this heat, cooling your home, is much easier, much less effort, much more efficient with a with ground source heat pump.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And so, is this the kind of technology that you expect people will be able to install in their homes in the future?
3: In the present, ah, um, oh, in the present, and in the past. And so, so in, in Europe, uh, <laughs> in Europe, this is quite well known as was spread um, in North America. The same in Korea, um, in, in part of China, in Australia, the market was very small when we started ten years ago. Um, and it's still small, comparatively speaking, with, with other parts of the world, but but it's growing. We went from having one or two geothermal energy companies installing these systems around Australia to have now maybe a dozen, mm. um,
0: and uh, so so it's growing. Um, and, and could it, I mean, I presume it's an individual homes, so you, you, know, you have it in the yard somewhere, I assume, do you? Um, the, the the setup, but could it also be a communal thing where a number of houses shared it? That sort of stuff.
3: Yes, in fact, that, that what we have discovered throughout the years is that that's perhaps the, the best case scenario. Mm. Uh, if you are in urban environments, we have limited land. Um, then, okay, I must say that doing a geothermal system, the additional cost with respect to a normal traditional split system, for example, is, is drilling into the ground. Mm. Okay. Um, so drilling is expensive. It, it, add, uh, it add cost to your overall system. Uh, and as you do it for only one home, and if it, if it is a brand new home, maybe well, you do spend $15,000 on drilling uh, because your home is half a million, one million. That's, that's really mm. not much. And you save a lot of money over the years. Mm. Uh, but not many people like to spend that money at front. <laughs> um, but you do have development where you have a number of homes there um, yeah. Ten or more, say uh, well, you just bring one drill rig, and that drill rig will drill the boreholes or the trenches um, in a, a larger scale. So th- there are economies of scale there, and um, that, that will reduce the capital cost of installing these systems. If you are in country Victoria, you are in country where you don't have access to um, natural gas, cheap natural gas that is, or your electricity bill is very high, then um, geothermal. Challenges of thermal technologies usually stack mm. up because you save a lot of money. You, you, for one kilowatt of electricity you put in your heat pump, uh, you get four to five kilowatts of thermal energy mm. uh, with the equivalent split system in in a very hot day of summer or very cool day in winter. For one kilowatt of electricity you put into your split system, you get maybe 1.5 to two kilowatts. So, so it's, it's twice as efficient. Yeah, um, yeah
1: great. Because I guess the only um, running cost would be the energy that you put to power the pump that pumps the water through the ground, right?
3: Well, there are two things. The You're right. So you have a, a small, very small circulation pump that pumps the water through the pipes embedded into the ground. Um, but that's really a minor cost if the system is well designed.
0: Could you use the power from its, the source itself to power the pump or does it have to come from elsewhere?
3: It has to come from elsewhere. So there are two pumps, the circulation pump and now the ground source heat pump, the heat pump itself, that consume electricity. Mm-hmm. That electricity you can source it from the grid or or you can have a solar PV system installed and, and mm-hmm. a battery, if you wanna run it at night. Um so so that that's the way it works. Now again the most expensive or additional expenses is the drilling, putting these pipes into the ground. So one of the things that we're doing now, and particularly back to your question, Kevin, is uh, when you have any earth movement, a- any excavations, any any piling and foundation to your buildings, to uh, you just chuck some pipes into those foundations. <laughs> you so you it say so <laughs> Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not rocket science. <laughs> um, uh, it's quite simple. It's just pipe and in the ground, and then the drilling costs go, mm. go out. Uh, so that's the way we're doing it now. Yeah.
1: Well, are there any major projects where you're doing that in Melbourne at the moment?
3: Uh, yes, yeah, some of them I cannot this close, but maybe I can mention some. Um, uh, maybe I'm going to mention the ones that we're running at the University of Melbourne. So there is a new building called Melbourne Connect um, in the corner of Swanston and, and Grattan Street, where the Royal Women's Hospital used to be. Uh, we're installing there um, a 100 kilowatt system with boreholes horse um, and it, a smallish 10 kilowatt system with what we call energy geostructures that is using the retaining walls, the slabs of the basement, the piles t- for the foundations of the building as, as a source of energy, thermal energy. So that's one of them. We are also building a new campus in Fisherman Benz. There is a chance to have 400 piles, wow. being energy piles, plus another 500 uh, pushing pipes. So so instead of drilling, we just push them in. It's much, much cheaper. And this is for up to four megawatts of energy. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um we have a school, the Elizabeth Background School of Sciences, uh, just next to Melbourne High. Also have a 120 kilowatt system with 28 boreholes going 50 meters into the ground. We have one more in a in a chicken farm in New South Wales. Uh, I was
1: reading about that um, online. That sounds like a really interesting project. <laughs>
3: it, it, it is. Um, so so chickens require chicks require heating during 15 days when they grow, cooling later later on the track, and uh, in... In the country, you must use LPG or or electricity to to heat or cool the the chickens. Um, But with geothermal, you you can do it with, um, well, just pipe buried into trenches, one hammeters down. And uh, we have one such system in in Pitch Ridge with a partner um, organization called Ground Source Systems. Um, So they they install the system. They were commissioned in the next month or so. It's quite cool. We have put four kilometers of pipes and um, four heat pumps, and there will be twenty thousand happy chickens being hit <laughs> and cooled with this with this system.
2: So, how how difficult or simple is it to add it to an existing um, property
3: or, or home? Yes, yeah, so, so that that's a bit more difficult, and, and we have done it. So, so, the state government has been very generous, and, and I think are proactive in, in investing in in growing the market. Um, and so we have installed retrofitted um, systems in about 15, 15, homes around the state. Uh, how difficult it is! If you have a piece of land where a drill rig can mm-hmm. fit mm-hmm. and drill 50 meters into the ground, 60 meters into the ground, and you need only two or three holes for a normal house, then that's doable. If, if you don't have, in, in an urban space, that that's, that could be tricky. Certainly not in the city, but in the suburbs uh, we have. Yeah. Um, if you go further away and you have land, and in, in country you have plenty of land, you don't go vertical because vertical is more expensive. You yeah. go horizontal, so you do very cheap trenching yeah. and you bury the pipes there. Um, the, so that's the additional thing, the, the, the pipes in the ground. So if you can do that, the rest is the same as you already have in your home. It will be a heat pump. And the distribution system is the ducting system or hydronic system, a, any any of the traditional ones. So it is doable, yeah. but you do need to get access to to, to the land to, to the ground somehow. Mm-hmm.
2: So it's better yeah. if it's uh, if there's new developments in urban areas that it's it has to happen beforehand, basically if they're high density kind of.
3: Yes, yes, yeah. because you will do this under the footprint of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm. Um, or, or in the surroundings and when you're building you have all these earthworks operations and all the rigs there so it's, it's much So to so what
0: degree do developers <laughs> and those developing new estates etc know about this? So they can, if they want to they can do it is it, is it common knowledge out there in that area?
3: No I wouldn't say that it's common knowledge yet but I can say that we have much more inquiries now and our partner, investi- partner organization does have many more inquiries from potential developments Um so some of them are seeing this uh, as, as a way to differentiate themselves from other developers uh, you are much more efficient, you have higher green stars, you, you are more sustainable, um, but not all of them are in uh, in, in to, to do it and, and, and the, the, the key I think is is relatively new technology to Australia so there is relatively a handful of people able to do it, to do it properly and is usually, you know, the inertia of just doing the same thing all over again, mm-hmm. uh, again and again, is much easier than to try new things. But there are a few mm. that are doing it, uh, and now we have engaged with very big developers, John Holland and Len Lee's, who are well aware of this, and they're partnering with us on some smallish trials. We need to build the confidence they can do it. They can do it cheaply, effectively, without interfering with the normal operations, and this is what we're seeing. And, and hopefully these two-big companies, just to mention a few, um, will, will, will lead the way. Um, and uh, mm. in the case of the chicken farm, these, everyone is waiting for seeing the results of, of, of this trial, of this mm-hmm. demonstration, to jump in.
2: So is there uh, is any part of your research look at why Australia has not picked this up at all, but it's very common and, and has been used for a long time in other parts of the world?
3: Yeah, so... so y- is picking up. Mm. Uh, the state government, the, the state parliament extension have now a geothermal system in. So behind the mm. um, the parliament uh, the building, there yes, new offices. Under the, the that new offices, you have geothermal systems. Um, so
2: they're there in person, but are they there sort of in policy? Or what, what's been the reason if it's used in Europe and South Korea and other parts of the world? I think the
3: reason is is, is lack of awareness of the technology, first of all, and... Melbourne Uni and the state government is trying to redress that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, there are a few people that is able to do a proper design and proper installation. Mm-hmm. So, so there is the market and and the and the offer is relatively small. Uh, thirdly, you mentioned something that is key: policy and, and and rebates like the ones that the solar PV had ten years ago. Mm-hmm. There is it's very funny. There are rebates for solar thermal heat pumps, and that's, that's great.
2: Like on the roof when you heat water exactly. and you can use it. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that's
3: very, very effective. Um, but uh, and that's, that is a heat pump. That heat pump is exchanging heat with mm-hmm. with the air, with the yeah. roof, yeah, with the sun. Yeah. The ground solar heat pump is exchanging with the ground. Well, mm-hmm. those, those systems are not eligible for the rebates. So and in Australia, there is no rebates or, or financial incentives um, that are substantial. In all other parts of the world and as we did with Solar PV here, is the government who tried to push the market. So in Korea, you have a 50% rebate on this. So so they Mm. skyrocket Mm. the number of installation. In Europe, you have a number of different uh, schemes, including because you're saving energy to the grid, Mm. uh, because it's more efficient, uh, then the government pays you per kilowatt of use. Mm. Uh, In North America, in in the US, you have a 30% tax rebate. Mm. Uh, So, maybe that's the first thing that we we are lacking uh, here. -hmm, mm -hmm. We we think that uh, eventually we'll get there and as the market grows and as the competition grows, prices will go down Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. despite not having uh, rebates in place.
1: Because mm. Mm. Um, recently we had those 40-degree days, and I was reading that a lot of the electricity grids in various suburbs kind of overheated it, or uh, were overloaded and shut down because everyone was running their air conditioners at the same time. So if you imagine lots of people having a geothermal system that helps cool their house, that would be able to help with overloading like that, right?
3: Yeah, you nail it. Uh, when was it? One, two weeks ago, we had these 40, 42-degree oh. days. Um the grid. We have some blackouts, and it's mm. partially because more than 50% of the grid demand is air-conditioning. Mm. Uh, really? That's, 50%? That's well, crazy. Well, could be as, as much mm. as that. Mm. And if you do have a geothermal system, well, you still need your, say, 10 kilowatts of cooling, mm. but you only use 2 kilowatts of the grid. With mm. the normal traditional system, you need 10 kilowatts mm. of cooling, but you're using 8 kilowatts from, from the grid. Mm. And that put a tremendous stress on the system. Yes, if we do have, say, market penetration of 30%, 30% of all the buildings in Australia with geothermal system, we will save a lot Mm. in carbon emissions, in cost, and reduce the chances of blackout dramatically. So you nailed it, uh, Mm. Eugene.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And of course, um, in that situation a couple of weeks ago, it was the coal-fired area that actually packed up. (laughs) And yet the fossils said, well, it's all due to renewable energy, so I couldn't work that one out. But uh, (laughs) uh, anyway, (laughs) uh, apparently when coal packs up, renewable's responsible for it.
3: Yes, well, I cannot comment on that. um, (laughs) (laughs) Other people think what they want to think. (laughs) But in
0: fact, on costs on that, um, a bloke who's an expert on it, a uh, bloke called uh, Martin Green, Professor Martin Green at UNS, UNSW, um, NSW, um, he says that uh, very shortly uh, um, solar power is going to get to a stage where it's going to be almost um, almost negligible costed altogether. So we're seeing, and we are seeing, the cost of renewables of all sorts coming down so dramatically.
3: That, that, that's, that's great news. The University of New South Wales has done a great job in advancing solar PV technology, yeah. um, making it more and more efficient, and therefore more cost-effective, uh, that generates electricity. If you can store it in a battery, say, then you can use that electricity to run the heat pumps, the geothermal heat pump that is, mm. because that consumes much less than the others. Mm. So it's, it's, I think, a combination of renewable, sustainable technologies that will make us uh, less dependent or less, less, uh, they put less stress on the energy.
2: Is Are there any parts of the world that you know of that are um, encouraging people to be off-grid in terms of using the solar panels and the geothermal together and then not engaging with the grid?
3: Um, that, that, that's not my area of expertise. Right. I, I couldn't really comment mm-hmm. properly. Uh, but I do know that there are a number of different incentives uh, around the world to uptake renewable energies, more sustainable uh, means. Uh, yeah. We cannot rely any longer, anymore mm. uh, for much longer on, on fossil fuels alone. Fossil mm. fuels are very efficient, uh, but I think that in the next 20, 30 years, we must transition to a more sustainable green energy technologies. And I think it's the role of the community and uh, the community being encouraged by policies and government to uptake these technologies. Some of them are more expensive. Well, that's, that's, that's fine. Mm. Uh, let's help the people who want to be greener to, to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You grow the market, competition kicks in, prices goes down. Mm. Everyone
0: is happy in the end. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. With geothermal, for electricity, um, one of the problems, or one of the problems we're told, is that the locations of these places are such that it, it's more difficult to get them into the grid. Um, Correct. Is that, is that the case? Yes.
3: So I am not an expert, specialist no, on, really. on, on that, the but geothermal, uh, yeah. uh, but, but you're absolutely right. So... so um, there was, there is, I'm not sure whether it's still in operation or not, uh, in the Copper Basin um, in, in South Australia, a power yeah. plant, 50 megawatts, that's equivalent to power up a neighborhood of three to 5,000 homes. Um, uh, but yes, they are, they are built uh, in remote areas and, and you generate the electricity, but then that's the supply. Mm. The demand is far off. You need to have the infrastructure to bring... The electricity generated from these remote places to to the demand centers. So mm-hmm. that, that's one of the the uh, the of perhaps, of the, the technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the reason why these plants are placed where they are is in Australia. We ha- we're lucky. There are certain spots that have very hot uh, rocks at relatively shallow depth. So in in Germany, you need to drill eight kilometers to get to one hundred seventy-five degrees. In South Australia, they find a spot that only four kilometers, wow. um, you get the temperature oh. that you need. In oh. Anglesey, uh, near Giron, is it? Um, yeah, there was also. I saw yesterday, went through it yesterday,
0: anyway.
3: Yeah. There was also yeah. plans for building one. Um, strange enough, the community was against it. They, I, I mm. saw protests. That was maybe seven, y- eight years ago. Uh, thinking that there was a uh, uh, polluting technology, and, and and it's not. Maybe that's. I think that the job that you're doing is great. You're, you're informing people, empowering people to, to know more um, and to avoid making these misconceptions, these mistakes. Maybe maybe the people in Anglesey thought, this is not a good idea. But, mm. uh, they yeah. hear power plant and they
1: think of coal. Yes, and it's, yeah. it's
3: quite the opposite. He was trying to get rid of that and yeah. <laughs> uh, using <laughs> the ground as, as, as a sort of energy. Yeah. Free. So the, the
1: the conditions around Anglesey are really um, appropriate for the geothermal yeah, that's my understanding. Just yeah.
3: because you have a, a hot, hot layer rocks. there, yeah. a relatively shallow depth. Yeah,
2: cool. Hmm. I might just say subscribe to CSA and we'll come right back.
3: Okay. All right. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street, and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are but I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed?
1: Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR.
2: Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $150 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 8377 and become an organisational subscriber.
1: Show your, your love, 3CR. 3CR.
2: Do. I want your I want
1: your all right welcome back to city limits um we're chatting this week to guillermo Narcillo from the university of melbourne about geothermal technologies and heating and cooling for buildings in the city or in the country or in the country mm-hmm. or at your chicken coop <laughs> or anywhere you like um, so I've got a question for you, Guillermo. So I was reading The Guardian this morning and it, there was an article saying that the Australian National University has um, been making headlines for a report saying the, that Australia may achieve its Paris Agreement targets five years early. Uh, what do you think about that?
3: Uh, I haven't read the article yet, mm-hmm. uh, nor the report. Um, what do I think about it? Uh, I think that is great news. They were meeting those targets earlier, international targets earlier, uh, but I would question whether the, re- the reduction in carbon emissions is due to uh, are we doing really um, the, the uptake of renewable energies, or, or is it that the overall electricity demand has has yes. gone down in the eight years? So, so you can reach the target by uh, by really, truly changing the technology that we use to generate power uh and that that that's the thing that we we need to you know try for yeah. mm. but if your total demand over the few years has gone down well that's the other, the other way um uh, so 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 it's good news that we were reaching them earlier, but may, maybe we need to drill deeper into the details of the data to see whether this is because there is much more renewables in in the energy market or is because the total demand just went down
0: or yeah, it, i think that report in fact is trying to say we can achieve it without doing much damage to the fossil fuel industry, which is what it's really about. But mm, yeah,
1: yeah, I think there's more going on there. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: that's, that's right. But in terms of, um, you know, you talked about saving money with um, with renewables. It's interesting that um, uh, they're talking of t- talking about different um, forms of renewable energy here in this article I'm going to quote from. But it says, the swift payback between 18 months and four years for rooftop solar combined with lead lights and other energy efficient tools is a compelling driver. Evan Jones, director of Health Hub Doctors Mooriefield, a large medical centre north of Brisbane which has 404 kilowatts of solar panels, lead lighting, broad energy-efficient eaves, huge rainwater recycling tanks and four electric vehicle chargers, can't imagine why every business isn't doing the same. We'll repay this in four years, Jones says. What other investment has an internal rate of return of 25%? And the article, in fact, is about... Businesses setting up their own renewable sources because they realise it's it's much cheaper. So um, comment on that. I mean,
3: oh, that's great. I think that uh, that's the role of engineers to do a, a feasibility study: is this project viable, mm-hmm. technically and, and financially? Some some projects like this one seem to stack up very well. Uh, I can tell you for experience that for geothermal, at least, it's not a magic solution. There are instances where this works very very nicely, and there are instances where the, the economy doesn't add up uh, because the drilling costs are, are too ex- excessive. And, and, and here is the thing. The more you use, the more you save. If you use it very little and it costs you a fortune, mm. then you're going to save a little mm. over time. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be the pay period will be much longer, the, the return yeah. uh, mm-hmm. will be lower. But, but this, is, this is great to see some, some examples of businesses driving um, mm. this uptake, and, and showcasing that there are cases where, or there are projects where uh, it does make economic sense. Uh, one, of, you, you asked me, Mike, what was some of the hindrance of, of technology? Well, sometimes it's cost. Sometimes it's that the billing contractor say, well, I don't know how to do this, so instead of charging it $100 mm-hmm. a pop, I'm going to charge 200 because you it's know there's a risk involved. Yeah. Um, but by showing that it is doable, then, then that risk component co- goes down. Mm. Um, and, and it will make economic sense. So you have l- all the environmental benefits, all the sustainability me- measurements benefits. But at the end of the day, the, the bottom line on, on, on costing and pricing, the dollar sign, I- I is the main driver. Mm. And uh, if it does make sense, they will go ahead. Mm. If it doesn't, you need to have a, a very strong policy, or a very strong client saying, well, I don't, I don't, mm. I don't mind if it is... Gonna cost me extra or not? Or two? Yeah. Just do it.
2: Because I feel like surely um, solar panels. I don't know the details of it, but there was a point in time where that that was the case, where people had to feel very strongly that they wanted solar panels and they were willing to take the higher initial cost um, in return for like a, a lower long term cost. But then, there, but then at whatever point there came in the incentives to be able to have your energy bought back by the grid, which I am not sure where they stand now. But yeah, it so sounds like a similar point with geothermal at this moment.
3: Uh, so, th- so the strategy has been not doing this at an individual level 10 years ago or more. And they start with very high mm. rebates or incentives. Mm. And over time, as the market developed and competition developed, pricing went down. Mm. Well, those rebates were also went went down over time. Mm-hmm. So I am told that uh, a kilowatt of total uh, panels was worth... Ten thousand dollars fifteen years ago. Now mm-hmm. it's two thousand dollars, one thousand dollars. So yes. it, it went down dramatically over the years. Mm. But that was helped by the grown, by the growing of
0: the market, mm. incentivated by the rebates in place mm-hmm. before. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Also, well, I was going to ask you earlier, but one of the problems I think is that you know talking about be- making this popular in Australia and the fact that at the moment it's still pretty much at a you know embryonic <laughs> sort of stage in some ways. Um, one of the problems always seems to me that we, you know, we interview lots of academics who have wonderful ideas and are doing great things, but it never seems to get past the university level. If they write papers, they're read by other academics. But how do you get that information out in the community so this sort of thing can take off and people can start using it much more?
3: That, that's very important. Um, as a university, we do both fundamental research and applied research. And the sort of research that my group has been undertaking is, is more on the applied side. Mm. And uh, now apply and then translate it into reality. There is also one more step. Uh, the job that you are doing um, is great. You're you're communicating others, well, this exists, it's doable, it's not rocket science, mm-hmm. it's wiping <laughs> to the ground, for God's yeah. sake. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's our job as academics not only to write to the academic audience, because that's our KPIs, mm. key performance indicators, but also to communicate it to to the general public, mm. to talk to the, the developers, the, the, the key stakeholders, including government. Mm. We have submitted a report, a final report to the state government in May last year we, with a number of recommendations. Um, and we have been talking to big players. We have run board shops, closed doors and open doors. Uh, and again, we need to find those big, iconic projects where this is showcased. Uh, mm-hmm. We tried to do this with Melbourne Metro, um, mm-hmm. and there is a small trial uh, undergoing uh, at the moment with John Holland and the member of Retro-Rail Authority, but uh, really the, my, our thing was, well, let's do it in the whole part of the station. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not going to happen, unfortunately. Uh, Luckily, Sydney Metro now approached the university, so we'll see what mm. happened there. Let me... Let me give you an update in six or one in time. (laughs) Because these these
1: underground stations are already underground, right? So it's a perfect Mm. opportunity. Exactly.
3: Whenever you have a a structure in contact with the ground, put some pipes in.
0: Yeah.
1: So So any developers listening to 3CR, (laughs) (laughs) call Guillermo Narcillo. Yeah, (laughs) they're all out there
0: listening. (laughs) 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 uh, So in fact, I mean, something like the metro underground would be an ideal location so you could run all your air conditioning essentially by, by geothermal.
3: Yeah, so, so that was, uh, I mean, we good judgment, the Melbourne, Retro- Melbourne Metro Rail Authority more than two years ago approached the university and say well, what can we do here? Mm-hmm. And initially we said, tell them, well, just put pipes into the <laughs> lining of the tunnel. You have nine kilometers of tunnel. Mm-hmm. You can get eight megawatts of thermal energy out of them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you need a demand for that. And, 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 uh, and I, 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 they came back and said, well, listen, that may be too complicated. It's too, too, too difficult. And I agree. Uh, but what about, they came out with what about using the, the wall, the piles that we have in the station? So, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Um, so we did a technical feasibility study just for cooling the station. The station underground requires a lot of cooling, air conditioning, not mm. so much heating. Mm. But for geothermal, it's better to have a more more of a balanced heating and cooling demand. Mm. So we told uh, the state government, well, listen, if you have only cooling, you can reject this heat to the ground, but over 100 years of the duration of the project, Mm. you're going to eventually overheat the ground. Or you can not overheat it, but then you're, um, you can only get so much energy out of it, a very small amount. Mm. The key is, and we did that in a second study, to find ways to balance that demand. Mm. So we have a lot of cooling air conditioning for the station itself. But in the case of Parville Station, we had the university next door, hospital next door, mm. that required heating mm. almost throughout the year. Mm. Um, so I said, well, we have found your third party <laughs> uptake <laughs> of heat. Now yeah. we can balance the thing, and it works beautifully. Mm. Um, but I think our report came <laughs> went into on the 22nd of December. The tenders were um, were due early next the, the following year. Mm. Uh, and, and this is just a small thing in this it mammoth got project. Got lost. So I think that they got uh, yeah. to be lost.
0: But I couldn't imagine it being much more complicated than digging the nine kilometres of tunnel in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. But so. like,
2: collaboration <laughs> is the thing, isn't it? Like it's very different sort of psychology to the idea of like everybody just so- works on their own project or their own dwelling or whatever mm-hmm. and that we have these kind of like silos of people working on their own projects and, and that's a different... Mentality to actually yeah. collaborate yeah. with other properties and, and dwellings yeah. around.
3: But you. but I commend the the Melbourne Metro Rail Authority and the government. They did try to get this. In written from from the third parties, and they mm. got it eventually. Mm. But maybe the timeline wasn't, wasn't aligned with the timelines of mm. the building contractors. Yeah. These are yeah, $9 billion well, projects. We're actually out of time. Yeah, well, mm. We've got
0: to go. But uh, just uh, promotion next week, of course, is housing. So um, Fiona York from Housing with Age Action Group will be coming in, and there's another guest as well, is there not? Or no? No.
1: Oh, I don't think so. Why are you looking at me pointedly, Kevin? About, you talked about. Um, oh, a, sorry, yes. there is. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: love
1: that you're just like <laughs> insistent. <laughs> no. no, there was. I oh, no. think I
0: just made a good deal myself. We've yeah. been trying
1: to organise this interview for a long time, so we're very yes. excited that it's finally happening. Obviously, um, you forgot all about it. <laughs> so, we're talking to Alex Fearside from an organisation <laughs> called Coop, Urban Coop. Um, they're a housing cooperative that is um, building some new co-housing in Melbourne. So we're going to talk to them about co-housing yeah. and alternative like land ownership models in Now Melbourne. I don't
0: feel so stupid. That's good, okay. <laughs> 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, well, look, thanks for coming in. It's been yeah, great. If, if people like want to get in more, more information, can they contact the uni? I guess they can. Yes, they can contact What's, the Which department are you in?
3: I am in the Infrastructure Engineering Department they can contact the Melbourne Energy Institute or they can google my name Guillermo yeah. Narcilio and uh, you will find me yeah. we'll
1: put a link yeah. in the podcast notes mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah.
3: thank you okay. thanks before chill on, the one that you loving the wish that never